Happy Good Friday, everybody, and welcome back to our Romans study here, in which we are on the third recording and still in the first chapter. Now, we are just going to go ahead and jump right into it, because everybody, I know you're probably looking forward to a Good Friday service. You might be looking at, well, this is the celebration of the gospel, Christ who died for us. And that's good. And it's good that you're listening to this, uh, this chapter here in Romans because we are going to go over who did Jesus die for. And oh my goodness, is this going to be good today. So let's go through a little bit of what we've studied thus far. We went through Romans 1 verse 1 through 7 here in which St. Paul talks about, well, a greeting he brings up exactly why he's doing what he's doing, who he's talking to, and he establishes his authority, his right to be called an apostle uh, so that the Roman church is going to listen to him. You know, he, he's bringing this up because he is writing not a theological textbook, although the book of Romans is the closest thing in all of the Bible you're going to get to a systematic theology textbook, but he's still writing to people, and he's still writing to a church. And in these first seven verses, we went over how he is uh, kind of giving a bit of a foreshadowing for everything he is going to teach us in this book. Everything from who Jesus is, what the gospel means for us, what is the new obedience so that we do not live in sin as the saints the saints you know why don't we want to sin now that we have been redeemed but then he does get into a bit of personal matter then in uh, verses 8 through 15 in which saint paul brings up okay well i want to let you guys know that i'm writing this also in part because i really want to come and see you i really want to bless you with me being here and I want to be blessed by you with the kind of fellowship that only Christians can enjoy with one another. Mutual encouragement. And then he says, I also want to be here to preach the gospel both to you and to the barbarians, the the foolish, the non-believers out there in Rome and maybe buffer the church a bit, bring people in those doors. And then we went through uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, in which St. Paul, when he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And he brings up that comparison between Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the foolish, reaping a harvest among those who are not yet converted, as well as, well, reaping a harvest among those who already believe the strength and verification of the power of the gospel. He's confident, he says in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now here we are disagreeing with our dispensationalist family members, I suppose, or acquaintances where that does not mean that Jews have a special privilege before God or a special insider relationship with God, but this is more about the, the Old Testament and the relationship that Jews have historically had with revealed scripture that Gentiles did not have. And St. Paul is writing this after his time in the Areopagus, where he had to try to preach the gospel to Gentiles who had literally no clue what the Ten Commandments were who Moses is, um, what King David is all about, or they don't understand the, the very concept of typology or the issues concerning awaiting the Messiah. And hearing Paul's sermon at the Areopagus, is, I mean, it's a good try. <laughs> it's a good attempt for somebody just figuring this out. But he didn't have to do that for the Jews. And that's what he says when he brings it to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But He's not ashamed of the gospel, for it, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we brought up a big, 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 huge issue here in the book of Romans, that there are three recognized forms of faith. There is notitia, 
ascensus and fiducia, where we bring up that, yes, we're going to establish God is the one who grants faith. God is the one who brings us to believing, but it is that same faith that then receives the faith that we live by. When we get to a place of fiducia faith, that is because God has inspired the ascensus, the agreement that first started with Notitia. And then we get to today's reading. We're going to be reading from verse 18 all the way to verse 32. We're going to make the biggest reading and well, we're probably not going to have as much to say about it as we have the other pericopes because it is so on the nose and it is so offensive to worldly sensibilities because nobody can misinterpret it. Now there's some extra things here that we're going to point out, but we're going to go ahead and just read all of it here and then we're going to go back and go verse by verse everything. So, Hear the word of our Lord from Romans chapter 1, beginning in the 18th verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh boy. Now, hearing that, our first impression here is that, you know, St. Paul has just drank fully leaded anger juice. And he's just letting it all out there. This is a fire hydrant of apparent hostility just flooding the text. But the question is, why? And in order to understand this, we're going to go back verse by verse here, and we're going to start to kind of chart out what St. Paul is saying. And it starts with verse 18. Let's go ahead and read verse 18. For, and stop right there. For. Because. Or for this, not for this reason, but for. And we have to ask, if he put therefore or because we could ask what is the therefore therefore or we could ask why is saint paul saying because here well thankfully in the greek the the word gar here it's a according to biblehub.com again everybody please make that website your friend 
That is your friend if you haven't learned Greek fluently. I, I only know enough to be dangerous with Greek and Hebrew. <laughs> Everybody who goes to seminary, I mean, let's face it, very few of us are just fluent in these ancient languages of Koine Greek and ancient Hebrew. So BibleHub.com is fantastic. If you just put into Google the specific verse you want to look up and then use the word interlinear, usually the first result there is the interlinear with things you can click, numbers and everything. But in case you can't get to your computer here, this is Strong's number 1063, GAR. It's a conjunction used to express cause, explanation, inference, or continuation. Which means it's best to translate this as for or using the word because. And we have to ask why St. Paul does that. It means this is a continuation of the previous pericope where we read just before then. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, last week we went over how St. Paul here is echoing Habakkuk the prophet, who learns from God that it is by faith that you shall live. Now, us Lutherans, we look at that and go, yes, you are justified by faith. That is important. But we never look at, okay, the reasoning for this without a little bit of extra reading. The righteous shall live by faith because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Let's just turn that into one clause. Let's reread that. The righteous shall live by faith for or because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What is he getting at? You are not going to live any other way before the Lord our God. There is absolutely zero way for you or me or anybody to be saved except through our Lord Jesus Christ, through faith in him. It is at this point, St. Paul takes that statement, the righteous shall live by faith, and he springboards off of it to let us know there is no other option because God is absolutely livid at humanity. And this is the only way to escape that wrath. Now, he says, men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It could be, and, and I've heard this before, some people claiming that this is, oh, oh, by all means, this is a category of humanity. This isn't God being mad at everybody, and, and they're wrong. They are absolutely wrong because they are refusing to understand the context of the immediate next verses. Ver and as well as just plain reality. We'll get into that for a second here. So it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness, you are not holy. Unrighteousness, you are not a good person who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It is through unrighteousness, not through ungodliness. It is by unrighteousness that they suppress the truth. Now, if you hear me clicking a lot here, sorry about that. That's using my mouse here to go back to the interlinear where we see the word unrighteousness here being adikion, uh, Strong's number 93, where it literally means moral wrong versus asebeon, which is impiety, irreverence, ungodliness, or wickedness here, Strong's number 763. St. Paul here is saying it is by their moral faults, wickedness, not necessarily their, their unbelief. It is our sin that lands us in this hot water with God. Now, 
does everybody do this? Is God mad at some men who do this or is he mad at everybody? I will tell you right now it's at everybody. Because we read in verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Meaning, God reveals himself. You do not need a Master's of Divinity degree from a seminary to figure out that God exists. You do not even need a Bible to figure out that God exists and that he is the one who made all of this. Now, I understand maybe there's somebody listening that goes, well, is that just the teleological argument? Are we just talking about natural law where Roman Catholic theologians read their opinions of God into their observations about the world? Because that's circular logic. No, 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 no. It is patently obvious to everybody that God exists. I'm going to tell you that right now because ever since creation, atheists have been a minority peoples. And even societies that claim to be just full of atheists here, they can claim that. They still believe in something non-physical. For crying out loud, I think it was Iceland where like most of the population proclaims atheism, but they all believe in fairies. Are you kidding me? No, there is no such thing as an atheist already. St. Paul is laying out this case. When we get to Romans chapter 2, we'll skip ahead here. When he talks about Gentiles, he says in 2 verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. The work of whose law? God's law. And the law, namely the Ten Commandments, tells you God exists. So God has made it so plain to people. When he says in verse uh, 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He has done this in more than one way. It just so happens that in this pericope here, St. Paul is talking about how the observable world does show us that it doesn't come out of nothing. It just doesn't. And there, you know, obviously this is a Bible study here, not necessarily an apologetics podcast. But I can tell you that if you just look at numbers or the, the laws of science or whatever, the laws of physics, you have to wonder why all of matter obeys them. When we look at the observable effect of gravity, if I take something and I drop it and it falls and I take another thing, a totally different thing and drop it, it still drops and it's going to drop at exactly 9.8 meters per second per second or whatever, whatever that law is specifically about the rate of acceleration for falling objects according to gravity. Why those numbers? And this law, which is observable, is not a physical thing. Are you going to say that obeying gravity that does not exist in terms of equations and calculations is, is just a, a property of things? Well, how does that work? And if these laws exist non-materially, which they must because you can't put a law of logic or a law of physics into a test tube to study it, it must exist non-physically. And if it exists non-physically, well, how do laws and ideas come into being through a mind? And if a mind is where it comes from, there must be a mind which establishes all of this and has the power to make it all happen, and that is God. A baby understands that God exists. A toddler understands that God exists. People who disbelieve do it because, as St. Paul says in verse 18, by their unrighteousness, they suppress their truth. The truth revealed to them by God. So, everybody reads this, this chapter and that's the first thing they understand. 
But they don't take it any further. That Yes, everybody knows there's God. The presuppositionalists are correct. You don't have to get into large, massive debates with people where you're arguing about whether the teleological argument or the cosmological argument uh, is valid. I mean, let's face it, guys. Those apologetic methodologies are perfectly fine in supporting somebody who already believes that has questions, but they're not going to convince atheists because it's a moral problem. They are not suppressing the truth by their brains. They are suppressing it by their reason. And everybody can read Romans chapter 1 and figure that out. But they don't look backwards. They see verse 19 here and they forget that verse 19 starts with what word? For. Which in the Greek is diodi, Strong's number 1360, which is the word because. It's even more specific than the word gar. So if we look at verse 18, how does that start? For the righteous shall live by faith for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Skip for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. St. Paul is saying you have no excuse for your behavior and your sins. So God is mad at you. And the only way you are going to escape his infinite, omnipresent, no escaping, no hiding, no avoiding, and no fighting back because he is omnipotent, that wrath of the almighty creator is on you. The only way to escape it is through faith. We look at point A. And, and Calvinists are really, really good at point A, saying everybody knows that there's a God. So nobody is with, uh, with an excuse here. But they don't look at the therefore God is mad at you. <laughs> and he says, for, in verse 20, in case we want to get more specific about it. If they're asking, well, how is God shown how has God shown himself? What, he can, what can be known about him to us? His invisible attributes, verse 20, because or for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Again, St. Paul, just underline that, highlight that, rewrite that in bold with a gigantic felt tip marker so they are without excuse. God created a universe which declares his existence, where even the most feeble-minded, low-IQ individual can figure out and see, oh, God made this. He must be really, really powerful, and he must be divine. I should worship this God. Now, can you find out other things? Yes, St. Paul does say what can be known about God is plain to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power. He must be powerful enough to create this universe in divine nature. He's God, so I should worship him. But yes, you can find out more. St. Paul isn't here again. He's even though this is the closest thing you're going to get to a systematic theology textbook, it is not a systematic theology textbook. St. Paul is not doing the Thomas Aquinas bit of trying to index every little thing that you can find out about God through nature. But there's, yes, obviously you can find out more. Good example, food comes out of the ground. <laughs> Plants come out of the ground. And you shouldn't be able to just eat whatever plant looks like corn and be fed. But that must mean that this God that created this entire universe made it possible for all of these fields of corn and wheat and pea pods or whatever it is you eat to happen. So I can eat. Oh, this God is providing for me. He is benevolent. You could do this for so many of the attributes of God to find out exactly what he's like but 
that's not St. Paul's main point. He just brings this up for that last part of verse 20 here. So they are without excuse. Now, then he adds another for. If you're noticing, for and because, every time we see these little conjunctions, we have to bring them to the forefront of our mind to understand the text or else we never will. So we keep going here. In verse 21, so they are without excuse, and then St. Paul circles back. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, he has his, uh, that, that word there, that little phrase, so they are without excuse. And then he says, because. Now, he already explained that they're without excuse, <laughs> right? He already says God is mad because what can be known about God is plain to all these people who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness because he, al well, he already shows us. His existence is plain. His rule over everything is plain. And again, later on in Romans 2, he'll include the fact that God's law is written on our hearts. So he's already explained. He's already explained it. Why there is no excuse. But remember, St. Paul was a Pharisee. He is a Hebrew. And he is writing with a view to what's called chiastic structure. In Hebrew poetry and in non-poetry, a whole lot of the Bible, in the Old Testament, there's something called chiasm, which is uh, key being the X-shaped letter of Greek, where you don't just say statement A, statement B, conclusion C. Instead, you say statement A, statement B, conclusion C, statement B reworded, statement A reworded. Oftentimes, to give this, uh, this uh, kind of expansion of the main point, you enrich your understanding of it. Uh, if you ever look at the Tower of Babel episode, that whole thing centers around, then God looked. And then I dropped something. My apologies for the unprofessional nature of this recording here. But I'm animated. It centers around the statement, then God looked down. So before he does, we see all this action happening, and then God looks down, and then he undoes everything mankind was doing. That's important. The author of Genesis, Moses, wants you to look at that pericope and say, okay, this is what God did in response to these people and this is his response to undo all of it and it all centers around the fact that God was watching mankind as they built the Tower of Babel. So when we look here, so they are without excuse for <laughs> he's bringing us to a chiastic explanation. He says, for although they knew God, which he already established, that God made that plain, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That's a mirror. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, he's God, we should worship him. They're not doing that even though they know who God is. He's revealed it. It's not, God isn't an idea that you either agree with or don't agree with. Everybody already believes. But knowing this, they did not honor him as God. So they're ignoring the divine nature and they're not giving thanks to him for the way that he uses his omnipotent, omnipotent power. But Instead of doing that thing, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we got to ask ourselves here, why futile? Why futile? Well, the word futile there 
uh, emataiothesan is, well, the actual meaning of it here is vain. To make something vain or worthless. To make it empty. Now, have you noticed that nothing the non-believers try really works out? Ever? Maybe they can have a good PR campaign where they make it look like it is a good idea. They can make it look like it works, but it always, well, kicks them and shoots them in the foot. Nothing works. We look at this for events like the French Revolution. Oh no, the French aristocracy is oppressing us. The common man is pushed down. I know. Let's have a revolution and kill all of them. And then we're going to push the little man down. That'll fix everything. No, it didn't. It didn't fix anything. It just made things worse and a whole lot of people died. <laughs> That's your French Revolution. That's the futility, the emptiness of human thought. And... Their foolish hearts were darkened. And we're going to get more into this, this idea of being darkened when we start to discuss free will. And I know some people are very excited to hear what is the Lutheran position on free will because it's like walking through a dense forest filled with thick fog and there's a lot to parse out there. But this is a part of that. They first decided to not honor God or give him thanks. As a result of that, they become futile in their thinking and then their foolish hearts are passive, darkened. We'll address that in a moment. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now, when it comes to the claims of people to be smart here, uh, that word, uh becoming a simpleton, it's not just foolishness in the sense of Proverbs where foolishness is really a moral quality. It is those who do not care to obey God or love him. They're already that. St. Paul is taking that and a step further, saying claiming to be wise, they became simpletons, idiots, for their denial of honoring God, for their refusal to follow after him or have faith in him. That's more powerful than just saying the word fools. It would be better if the text was rendered simpletons. And here's how this works. The people who claim that they are the smartest, the people who trumpet their, uh, their qualifications and their IQ score, the people out there who believe they are something, end up advocating for the dumbest things. There are people out there, again, let's use the French Revolution as an example, of people out there who claimed to be extremely wise but did the dumbest things in the world here. What did the French revolutionaries do? Well, they saw an injustice and they decided, well, we need a society organized around reason. And I know we're going to have a festival to the great being and have a, a goddess called reason paraded around a human woman in costume here because it's all about how smart we are. And they were idiots. They didn't realize that turning all of French society topsy-turvy would lead to a reaction, namely the Thermidorian reaction where these French revolutionaries die. They get executed for all the harm and trouble that they caused upon French society. Claiming to be wise... They became fools. But we go further than that. In verse 23, St. Paul does explain a little bit more of 
well, it's not just becoming stupid. It's also the things they do, the ungodliness he mentions in verse 18, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, mortal man, self-worship. Secularism, humanism, worshiping the man rather than the one who made man. Why is that stupid? I mean, obviously, that's a result of their stupid. They take this glorious, fantastic, powerful, omnipotent, holy God that everybody knows exists and loves them, provides for them. And they say, no, I'm going to worship man. And I can tell you with just a few examples why that's stupid. Have you ever heard of coprophilia? I know this is crass, but there are people out there that eat their own feces. And that's, that's how they get their kicks. That's how much fun they have. That's man. We have people that eat their poop. And you say, oh, well, that's not the greatest representative of them. Fine. Wars have been started over insults. World War I started because one, one royal got assassinated, so millions of people died as a result. We're not sending our best when it comes to the reputation of humanity. As much as I hate uh, the author... Uh, the works of guys like Harlan Ellison with books like I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Or uh, there's a Ray Bradbury, that pessimistic sci-fi writer that kids have to read in elementary school where it's like, uh, yes, men were on a spaceship and aliens showed up and the aliens were like, here, we'll show you real peace. And then the aliens freeze them and kill them. Because there is no peace where there are men. If you want peace, then you must get rid of the humanity. <laughs> as much as I can't stand that, they got a point. Because if you have a secular humanist worship of hum of mankind, uh, you are settling for far less than you ought to worship. It's like exchanging a Lamborghini for a Gremlin or a Pinto that has no wheels and no roof, and broken glass that just shoots out at you, cutting up your face the moment you turn the ignition. But as if it, as if it couldn't get worse, because yeah, mankind can achieve some things, he also brings up birds and animals and creeping things. People would rather, there are people out there that would rather worship bugs than worship the true God. There's a clear devolution of mankind's morality. And they choose that over God knowing better. Now this does answer a question, by the way. Because in recent years, there's been a, an argument between various theologians about inclusivism or exclusivism. Meaning, are people saved only that are Christians or are there non-Christians that are saved that are going to heaven? This tells us pretty darn clearly that there is no salvation outside of Christ Jesus because the righteous shall live by faith. God's love for you, which we proclaim as infinite, does not take away everybody's responsibility for their sin. And it does not take away responsibility from the ignorant, those who have never heard the gospel, for what in their character is a refusal to worship God. Now, how bad are they going to have it at the last judgment? Is hell going to be tiered punishments or whatever? I don't know. I can't tell you. But I can tell you that the inclusivists out there are wrong. Because God is still mad at those people's sins and they have not sought the Savior for those sins. They're trusting in, well, man, images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They're not trusting in the true God. And if one of them 
does want to follow the true God and they do want to hear the gospel. I am very, very certain God sends human missionaries to bring the gospel to them. But continuing on, we get another, another word, this time, therefore, in verse 24. So St. Paul's structure in this uh, pericope has been for, for, because, for, for, and he ends that chiasm saying, God is furious at mankind because he exists and he's proclaimed that to everybody. So they're without excuse. And let us that's the center of my chiasm here. I'm going to flesh it out a little bit more. Because although God did this, he, he revealed himself. There's no such thing as an atheist. Atheism is something that exists in dictionaries. Even though this is the case, knowing better, knowing better, they still rebelled against him. And in the course of this, they end up making a mockery of themselves as total idiots, ending up worshiping man or gods that they made in the image of man, and, well, birds and animals and creeping things. Then, after having written that down, he says, Therefore, Dio, in the Greek, Strong's 1352, which is on, on which account, or wherefore, therefore, he switches gears. Because of all of this, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Again, summing up everything he said <laughs> up to verse 23. In verse 25 it says, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, this and the next few verses bring us up to the question of free will. The Bible presumes that you have the capability of making real meaningful choice. The Bible does not presume that you can save yourself. In fact, St. Paul here in Romans chapter 1 has just made it very, very clear that there is no salvation for you outside of Christ. And he says, from faith for faith, the faith which God gives us that thus receives the faith as a whole. But when God gives somebody up in the lust of their heart to impurity, they no longer have a choice in that. In the way to, to understand the Lutheran conception of the bondage of the will is this. Nature. Nobody cries that rocks are blind because rocks don't have eyes. They're never meant to see. In addition to this, I've never seen a human being cry that they are not, they cannot make the decision to flap their arms and fly. You're given a lane, you stay in it. And you can't get out of that lane. Sure, maybe you can build an airplane, but the, and you can try to chase nature away with a pitchfork, but she always comes rushing back, as Horace says. But at the end of the day, you can only express your will according to your nature. If your nature is that of a sinner, a damnable, ugly sinner, the choices you make are going to be according to that nature, according to the very way that you are. So, an alligator is going to bite because that is an alligator's nature. They ha they're designed for it. They, they have these chompers. They can't chew through leafy vegetables the way uh, a hippopotamus could. So, alligators out there, they, they got to bite. They got to hunt. They got to eat meat. Now, an alligator is still going to choose to bite, but that is in accordance with his nature. Humanity with a fallen nature goes ahead and does what a fallen nature does. Horrible, sinful, ugly things that demonstrate our complete and total depravity. But there is a point in which 
chance after chance after chance, call to repentance after call to repentance, over and over and over again, God just gives humanity up. That one individual out there who stubbornly refuses. Well, he says, fine. Have it your way. And thus, they go out, and according to their nature that they have chosen for themselves, mind you, according to their fallen nature and their acts, you see, you can make your nature worse over time. You can get worse and worse and worse until God says, fine, have it your way. I'm giving you up to the lust of your impurities, the lust of your heart, all this. Go ahead. Dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because, and Calvinists, hold your breath. Because they were predestined to exchange the truth about God for a lie. They had no choice in the matter. And this is how they were pre-programmed before their birth. Wait, sorry, sorry. It doesn't actually say that. It says because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That word, exchanged, uh, metallicon, to change, transform, alter, it's in the uh, aorist, indicative, active tense. And it's a third person plural, so St. Paul is saying all of these people, and by extension all of us here, before we became Christian, decided that instead of worshipping the true God, to worship a lie. It was a conscious, real decision. And maybe it was a conscious, real decision that's in the back of our minds. But according to our fallen nature, we all made that decision. We all decided this is who we want to be. So God gives humanity up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and some far worse than others. So obviously for my reformed friends listening, this means I just can't accept the whole double predestination thing. Sorry, I just can't. Because at the end of the day, it says not God forced them to. If we're going to be consistent sola scriptura believers here, it does not say God forced them to. It says that they chose this. Our nature is so corrupted that this is among the very first choices that we make before we can even go to the potty by ourselves as little kids here. Before we're potty trained in our evil, we choose this. And that's, by the way, why you got to baptize babies. Anyway. St. Paul then continues, he says, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. It's a, it's a confession of faith on St. Paul's part. I, I almost wonder whether in his condemnation of humanity here and explaining the dire circumstances that we are in, St. Paul is just kind of checking himself. He doesn't like writing this. It's just a bit of speculation on my part. But he does make sure to include this, reinforcing the fact that, yes, the creator is superior to the creature. The truth about God is superior than the lies that we hear every single day. And St. Paul counts himself among those who believe. So, again, in chiastic structure here, Verse 25 is kind of the center of this. Verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And if we skip over here in verse 26, we see in verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And here's some explanations. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And he's going to explain 
more here. He's going to break off the chiasm there. But that's the A1 and A2 statement. He explains in the first statement what the lusts of their hearts to impurity means. It means, well, sexual depravity, sexual sins, but also more than that. He expands on that in the last few verses of chapter 1. But the center of this chiasm here, starting in verse 24, is in verse 25, because it all comes down to they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In verse 25, we understand the heart of this, the beating heart of all of humanity's sin is to exchange the truth about God for a lie. To say, no thank you to the one true God who loves you, created you, provides for you, has done so many wonderful things for you, who, who developed the I-thou distinction that he's God, you're not. To say no thank you to that and say yes please for something that is false. And then to go about your merry way, worshiping, well, creatures, things, what you enjoy. What does that end up in? As we said, in dishonorable passions, uh, impurity. Uh, St. Paul here, as an example of that, not the whole of it, brings up homosexual sins. Is it just that? No, obviously. Because then he gives us this list here. Since they did not end, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, here in verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So the dishonorable passions are paired with a dishonorable, debased mind to do bad things. Motivated by, well, in verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, uh, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And all this comes back to exchanging the truth about God for a lie. He says a lie, by the way. Singular. Which lie? Have you ever wondered that? Which lie is St. Paul referring to? I think I can give you one. I think I can give you what he's probably referring to here. And we're going to find it all the way in Genesis chapter 3. Now, in the Greek, it's not a lie, it's the lie. What is the lie? If we go to Genesis chapter 3, detailing the fall of mankind, that is the very first thing that happens. Before Eve even takes a bite of that fruit, the serpent says to Eve, starting in verse 1 of Genesis, on the second half, he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's many lies there. But this lie, this false teaching here that the devil is presenting is that God has an evil ulterior motive to keep humanity away from their potential to become divine themselves. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. To make one wise, it sounds a little bit like claiming to be wise they became fools seems like Adam and Eve are the first people to go through this process doesn't it but continuing on 
The eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Hiding from God. I think there's some implications there, aren't there? But continuing on here, going backwards, you will not surely die, but instead, for, as the devil says here, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Ye shall be as God, the lie of the devil. You're going to be smart. You're going to know better. You're going to have a place, and that is, at the end of the day, the lie. That's the biggest lie. Mankind wanting to be his own God. Or to achieve Godhood in some way, shape, or form as our Mormon acquaintances, frenemies, whatever you want to call them, as uh, they would put it. Becoming God. Becoming omnipotent, omniscient, everything yourself. And that leads to all of these ugly things. Dishonorable passions. Shameless acts. A debased mind to do what ought not to be done. All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Everything that violates all of the Ten Commandments, that's us. Because of the lie. In following that lie, I'm not going to trust the true God for what I should and shouldn't do. I'm not going to trust the true God for my food. No, I'm going to be my own God. And I'm going to go with that. The lie that the devil told Eve is not a one and done thing. We all get told it every single time the world, the flesh, or the devil wants to tempt us with something. And tell us we should be our own God. And do what we want. And not in the same way God tells you to do. So uh, it's, it's going to be evil. Now if we continue on here in this last verse here. Though they know God's decree. That those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them. But give approval to those who practice them. And how do they know it? Well, as, we, as we'll see in Romans chapter 2, God writes his law on our hearts. Everybody knows this is wrong. But everybody wants to be God. Everybody wants to be like God. They want to know good and evil on their own terms. They, they follow that lie through. Whether they realize it and can verbalize everything... Knowing full well that God says you deserve to die. Well, but if I'm God, then God's decree that I should die doesn't count, does it? So there. <laughs> That's our attitude. That is our sinful attitude. And you look at this. And you go all the way back to verse 17. Where St. Paul says the righteous shall live by faith. And suddenly it makes a whole lot more sense. And Christ's death on that cross for us makes a whole lot more sense. Because if you had an entire race, species of humanity that has rebelled against you by saying they don't want nothing to do with you. And they would rather suffer that punishment and risk eternal death than admit that they are not their own gods. Oh, you'd be mad too. Christ's death on the cross is the only way that this wrath could be satisfied. Because I, in my wickedness, in my sinfulness, cannot satisfy that wrath on myself, by myself. According to my sinful nature, what am I going to do? 
I'm going to do evil things, debased things, impure things. And I'm going to have a head full of wickedness. And whatever I say, if I want to do right by God, what is going to inform all of my deeds and works, it is all of that evil right there. And it's not going to let me do the right thing. So even if in theory I could earn my way to salvation, well, I'm not going to. Because even when I attempt it, I'm just going to do more sin, more evil. That's extremely important. This Good Friday, today, let us remember that. Christ went to the cross knowing that there is no way for us to be saved from this. From this slavery to the lie. Except his death on that cross and us putting our faith in him knowing full well we cannot do it by ourselves. And with that, everybody, happy Good Friday. Amen and amen.